Good morning, CHD. It is Saturday, February 11th, and I am your host and bring you again, James Corbett, who everybody already knows. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, James. Glad, so glad you're back. Um, as you we discuss, yeah, thank you. Um, we're discussing the WHO again. There was a drop of a document. Um, actually, for me, it was this morning that I got it. I don't know what it means. We'll discuss it a little bit. And then we're going to sort of try to do a 30,000 foot discussion of the WHO, the global biosecurity agenda, where this is coming from, where it's going, how it relates to COVID, vaccine mandates, vaccine development, it's, and all sorts of other things that are related. So to start out, I'll talk about the document. The WHO established a review committee for the 300 different potential amendments to the international health regulations that were submitted by the 194 members of the WHO. And um, this committee has met for three months and issued a whole bunch of comments about the proposed amendments. And that document now is about 100 pages long. It's full of comments and ways to try and harmonize the proposals, but it's completely unclear to me how much uh, influence this group has. And it seems that they're just a group of experts appointed by the director general of WHO. Um, they're making technical comments, but the WHO or the World Health Assembly, which is the nations comprising the WHO, will um, get to decide after a working group then goes through their comments and creates a later document. And we don't know how many iterations there will be before we get to a final document. Um, and while there was some pushback in this document regarding issues of sovereignty, dignity, human rights, and freedom of persons, which is a good thing, other parts of the comments indicate that basically this group is going along with, with the version that we saw previously. So uh, James and I have only had a little time to review this. I wonder what uh, James has to say. I think probably uh, I'm going to echo what you're saying here is that we don't have, we don't have a lot of context to understand the meaning of this document in terms of what, whether it will have any actual bearing or ramifications on what does or does not eventually get passed. As you say, this is going back into the working groups, these 300 amendments, and who knows what is going to come out on the other side. But I think actually that kind of underscores and underlines the entire point of this exercise, as it were, which is that we in the general public have very, very little access and transparency into what is going on, that this is happening in this vast bureaucratic mechanism of the World Health Organization that they've set up to do this. And we get these little windows into the process here and there, these documents that, again, it's a review committee that's just making suggestions. Will these suggestions be ad adopted? If so, how? Do we have any access to the actual negotiations that are going on in the working group? Of course not. So whatever happens is going to happen and come out on the other side as some sort of fait accompli. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we can, and I would certainly, I'll link it up in the show notes. I hope people will take a look through this document and pick out the interesting parts. But as you say, I don't know if this has any teeth whatsoever. 
I had a conversation today with Sylvia Barrent, who is an attorney who did her PhD on uh, these health regulations at the WHO, who worked for the WHO, and uh, with David Bell, who also worked at the WHO. And what I learned is that really this whole uh, desire to give WHO great authority over the world's pandemics um, goes back at least 20 years um, to something called global health security or global biosecurity. It um, seems to have been initiated uh, right after the anthrax letters. So 9-11 anthrax letters. And that, uh, if you remember, was the springboard for the um, Patriot Act and the beginnings of, of the US government spending approximately $7 billion a year on biodefense. So the PREP Act, you know, the, the liability shield for countermeasures for bioterrorism or for pandemics um, really uh, got passed in 2005. Um, Project BioShield, which funded a lot of this, was passed in 2004. And the EUA um, making emergency use authorization products that would have no liability and could be given on a mass basis with absolutely no human testing I mean, this is extraordinary compared to the existing regulations of the FDA. This all came about in the very beginnings of the 2000s and has progressed. So in order to continue spending a lot of money on this, and the United States has probably spent between 150 and $200 billion on so-called preparing for biodefense or bioterrorism and pandemics, in that intervening 22 years, certain myths needed to be developed and spread and believed by the country. You know, $200 billion is, a, you know, about $1,000 for every adult in the United States. So before you can spend that kind of money, you've got to convince people they need the product you're buying. And so the product is safety, right? Safety for bioterrorism. So if there's another anthrax letters, we'll give you vaccine, we'll give you drugs, we'll take care of you. The problem is, is that there's never been a, an instance where the preparations were actually appropriate, where they worked, where they made any sense. And the whole concept of pandemic preparedness seems to be a bogus one. Um, what do you think about that, James? I think you're right. I think in order to truly understand the framework of what's happening, we do have to go back at least two decades. As you say to the anthrax attacks, which I hope people are familiar with the craziness surrounding that story and what developed from it. I, I hope people even remember it because at this point it has been largely memory hold because obviously at first, as soon as the anthrax attacks were taking place, it was immediately blamed on Saddam Hussein, this has all the markings and special um, de decoder. We can absolutely detect the chemical trace that leads us right back to Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And once that turned out to be completely bogus, and they couldn't even pretend to the public that that made any sense anymore, they abandoned it, uh, eventually started pointing the fingers at Stephen Hatfill, who eventually won a uh, court case against the FBI for uh, dropping his name and ruining his reputation. And then, of course, it was eventually uh, blamed on Bruce Ivins as a lone nut who did it all by himself and then killed himself before anything went to trial. So um, 
done and dusted, right? No, there's huge problems with that entire Anthrax story and what really happened there. And people who are interested, type Anthrax into my search bar, for example, and you will find I've done a lot of work on that over the years, although not a lot in recent years. But actually, the real preparation for the infrastructure that really got ramped up by the Anthrax scare was underway before then. And uh, in fact, there was a lot of things that were culminating in 2001, one of which I hope, again, if the audience is interested uh, in this subject at all, I, I hope they will go back to look at Dark Winter, which was an exercise that was taking place in June of 2001 um, that was simulating a smallpox attack, a weaponized smallpox attack by a terror group on the United States. And again, search my site for Dark Winter. I've talked about it before, but I will also refer people to a very, very voluminous, very well-researched article by Whitney Webb called All Roads Lead to Dark Winter. And in that, she talks about the context of this and what was happening at the time. Um, for example, just setting the scene, in late June 2001, the U.S. military was preparing for a dark winter. At Andrews Air Force Base in Camp Springs, Maryland, several congressmen, a former CIA director, a former FBI director, government insiders, and privileged members of the press met to conduct a bio-warfare simulation that would precede both the September 11th attacks and the 2001 anthrax attacks by a matter of months. It specifically simulated the deliberate introduction of smallpox to the American public by a hostile actor. The situation was a collaborative effort led by the John Hopkins Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies, part of the John Hopkins Center for Health Security, which should ring some bells for people who know about the various things that they've simulated over the years. In collaboration with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Analytic Services Institute for Homeland Security, and the Oklahoma National Memorial Institute for the Prevention of Terrorism. So this article goes on in great depth to talk about the people who designed and scripted the simulation, Tara O'Toole and Thomas Inglesby, as well as uh, Randy Larson, Mark Demir, and Robert Cadillac, and charts these characters and their, their association with this biosecurity story over the, the last couple of decades and how people like Robert Cadillac ended up in positions to be influencing the response to COVID-19 and um, this crimson contagion and simulations like that that have taken place in the intervening decades. But that was the point at which this homeland security, biosecurity, biowarfare simulation um, exercise started to form the basis for what would become the infrastructure for the biosecurity state that started to get really gets to develop teeth in the wake of anthrax because suddenly, oh, the terrorists might have these bioweapons. So we have to start creating the bio uh, warfare homeland security state. One example of that, which I have gone over in my work, and I would highly recommend people, again, who are just getting caught up on all of this and need the background and the context to this, go back to my episode 86 of my podcast, which I released in May of 2009. It is called Medical Martial Law. And in that, I laid down in 2009, all of the various infrastructure, all the legal sort of prescriptions that were being put on the books to start this infrastructure for the building and the flexing of the, essentially the, the preparation for what we saw over the past few years. One example of that is the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act, which was developed in December of 2001, again, ostensibly in the wake of and in response to the anthrax attacks, although 
I think there may be questions about where this document really arose. But anyway, it was propounded by the Center for Law and the Public's Health at Georgetown and Johns Hopkins Universities and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And this was, a, as it says, a Model State Emergency Health Power Act was this I, uh, template legislation that was being passed around um, to all of the various states in the U.S. and individual states over the years. And I've lost count of how many have ultimately passed some version of this, this act, but um, the vast majority of states now have passed that. And it was essentially hardwiring in all the things that we saw, giving governors the powers to become essentially dictators in the event of a declared health emergency, including forced quarantines, forced vaccinations, whatever else the governor deemed necessary. So that's that's kind of the bigger background to this. This is how it was enabled. And that ties in, of course, to the International Health Regulation Amendments of 2005, which then, of course, brought in the public health emergency of international concern that we've talked about here in our previous conversations. So all of that was feeding into what became the swine flu scare, the Ebola scare, the Zika scare, and ultimately, of course, COVID-19. Yes. So that document was actually initiated by the CDC, who paid um, Lawrence Augustin uh, somewhere between 600000 and a million dollars to write it and, uh, you know, schlep it around the country and get the different state legislatures to adopt it, the Model Emergency Health Powers Act. And that was started in 1999, but only pushed out to the states right after the anthrax letters when they you know, we're worried. The The army had actually been, had a plan uh, to develop up to 75 different new vaccines for potential biological warfare threats in the late 1990s. And the um, anthrax vaccine program was brought in, not necessarily because they were so worried about anthrax, since anthrax doesn't even spread person to person and could be treated with antibiotics, but rather because it and the smallpox vaccine were the only two vaccines the army had that were already licensed. So they thought they could start this program, begin with anthrax, go to smallpox vaccine, and they did those two because in 2003, they started vaccinating the military for smallpox and have continued. But then in the same, at the same time, they would be developing at Fort Detrick these additional vaccines. So many vaccines had been developed at Fort Detrick, a large number. I have a list of 88 vaccines that were developed but never really tested in humans that the researchers may be used on themselves going back to the early 1990s. So what happened is they thought they'd get funding to actually test some of them or to develop better versions of them. And this was going to be a great boon for the, the, the medical part of the military. Uh, which has never, you know, that it's the fighters or the the flyers who got the attention in the military. But this would raise the status of doctors. And if you notice, in World War II, Shiro Ishii, who was the doctor who was in charge of Japan's biological warfare program, had raised the status of himself and, again, the, the military part of the, um, the it's not called the Defense Department in Japan, but the, the Japanese military doctors got high status because they were developing biological weapons. Also, a lot of people who then who worked for the military in this biological weapons or biological defense field then can go out and work for contractors. And that was where the real money was. 
So once BARDA got initiated around 2004 or five, um, and there was you know billions of dollars a year to be given to companies developing products for bioterrorism and pandemics, it was like you know the gates had burst open. There was a new um, industry that didn't exist before, and anybody could jump in. You could start creating products, and if you could convince the government that they would be useful, or if you could bribe politicians, or if you were a friend of the president, you know your company would get a uh, a very lucrative contract. That is what happened to Ronald Perelman, who was a big Dem donor. He bought a very large interest in a small company that had developed a drug for smallpox, and we didn't actually need it because the United States had already bought enough smallpox vaccine for everybody in the country during the Bush administration. So when Obama came in, it didn't need a smallpox drug. So Congress initially balked, and so everybody went away and were quiet. And then 18 months later, you know, they fixed whatever they needed to fix. And then uh, the contract was given to Ronald Perelman's company for about half a billion dollars for this drug, which later was named T-pox. And so we had a supply of it. And when this monkeypox so-called pandemic, the, the fluke uh, was never really a pandemic, appeared, what happens? But the government starts using T-pox, even though it's never been tested for monkeypox. And so lots of people were encouraged to get that drug. It was an IV drug. And we were able to, you know, use up a good portion of the stockpile, probably buy more. And the, you know, the gay men who were encouraged to get it became the clinical trial for T-pox so that it could then be licensed for monkeypox as well. Anyway, that is one of the many different uh, ways this whole concept is pushed because there is so much money involved. There's just a lot of grave, there's a lot of money left up. When you're selling a drug for $500 million, you've got plenty of money to, to you know, make things happen. And anyway, we, as I said, we've spent probably $200 billion. The, the WHO's projected build out for the biosecurity agenda that they want every country to become part of the cost of that has been estimated by a, a contractor for WHO at between $100 billion and $200 billion, with a $60 billion a year price tag to keep it going. So in order to, to achieve all of this, you have to make people frightened. And what they did was uh, keep those pandemics coming. So in 2002, there was the first SARS epidemic. It was in 20 some countries, but there were only 8,000 cases. It is generally believed to have come from a bat to a human. But, it, you know, how that exactly happened isn't clear. And why Tony Fauci was spending up to $50 million a year researching coronaviruses, even before SARS-1, is an open question because before that time, we only knew that it caused colds. What that means also is that Tony Fauci and, and NIAID and many researchers, coronavirus researchers, understood the toxicity of the spike, you know, even 20 years ago. And yet that was the platform that was chosen to build out 
all the COVID vaccines. And, and we need to ask questions about why that was chosen when the knowledge was there that it was going to cause problems. Maybe we should talk about all these different so-called pandemics that have happened in the intervening 20 years and, and go into sort of where they came from, how they were responded to, and whether it made any sense at all. You want to start? Well, or you Actually, want to start? yeah. Let me interject because your, your talk there is extremely important for people who don't understand the incredible financial resources that have been invested in various uh, fixes for these generated health crises, real or otherwise. And um, for people who need more on that, you, just, you're, you jogged my memory. I have just dug up a uh, an article that I wrote 16 years ago, WHO scaremongering for Big Pharma from August of 2007, which starts by noting that the WHO released its annual World Health Report today, touting its revised international health regulations policy, which seeks to regulate how countries should assess and report public health emergencies of potential international concern to the WHO. The report, entitled A Safer Future, Global Public Health Security in the 21st Century, seeks to maximize the impression of the UN body's dispassionate interest in the public good and minimize the politics of strong-arming governments into sharing public health information. And this information includes giving the WHO virus samples from H5N1 bird flu outbreaks, which critics fear will be given to pharmaceutical companies to develop costly brand name vaccines that those most afflicted by the disease can ill afford. And as I go on to talk about, of course, what was being touted at that time, as you might recall, one of the, the, the early iterations of this in the 21st century was the bird flu scare, because it was being predicted at that time bird flu is going to, somehow we know bird flu is going to weaponize and it's going to start spreading all around the world and it's going to cause this great next pandemic. That was what everyone was talking about in that time, 2005, 6, 7. And lo and behold, what was the answer to bird flu was Tamiflu, a brand name drug, which is commonly thought to belong to Swiss pharmaceutical giant Roche, but the intellectual property rights for the drug actually go back to an American company, Gilead Sciences, Inc. And wait, Gilead Sciences, Inc., who was the former chairman of that? Oh, that's right, Donald Rumsfeld, who at the time, of course, was Secretary of Defense as this was being rolled out. So you see the financial connections all over this place. But I would cite perhaps, from my memory, you're right, of course, SARS-1, uh, was the 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 sort of the first big event. And I remember all of the things around it. And it raised a lot of the issues that, of course, came to a head over the past few years about, well, should we be restricting travel? And should we, oh, you, you shouldn't be uh, discriminating people based on where they came from because you're afraid of some illness. And all of these types of issues, the idea of quarantines, and were first being widely floated, at least in my memory of uh, the public discourse. Um, but I, I think bird flu was the next iteration of that that occurred in the mid-2000s, which is particularly interesting because, as I say, they were basically predicting that this will be the next pandemic based on what exactly? How did they know that? And it wasn't until 2009 swine flu that I think they they changed tax with that a little bit, but ultimately um, to the same ends. Um, and of course, people remember that the vaccines were, the flu vaccine was going to be, uh, we need this, everyone needs to be taking this vaccine for this big dreaded swine flu scourge, which let's never forget, ultimately ended up being a less deadly than usual flu season in 2009. 
but it would if you remember it i certainly do uh, it was a big deal even over here in japan they were closing down schools everyone was deathly afraid of the flu that year and of course they sold a lot of vaccines on the back of it how did they end up doing that uh there is a clip i've played a few times of some people talking at the council on foreign relations around that time 2009 2010 about how to get the public motivated to take these vaccines and they they even talked about the idea of making them appear to be scarce so that their perceived value in yes. the mind of the public would go up and i have often contrasted that with clips that i i took from that 2009 era of oh there aren't enough vaccines for everyone there's only a few clinics they're they're really rolling these vaccines out slowly you have to line up for hours in order to get one and there was news broadcasts about this basically just doing man on the street interviews with people upset at why can't they get this straight? Why I want my vaccine now, damn it. And that was that was a big part of how that played out in 2009. And then, of course, we can move on to Ebola 2014. Do you want to cover that one, Meryl? Yeah, I want to point out that the monkeypox, same deal. There were lots of news about how it was so hard to get a monkeypox vaccine and photos of all these guys lining up in New York City to get one. And of course, you know, it was all lies and we have to dilute it five times. I wrote on my blog and Substack that actually the government was lying because we had 30 million doses frozen in Denmark and supposedly the FDA hadn't approved them for coming over here or it was going to cost too much for the freezers in the ships to bring it over <laughs> because it had to be frozen at a very low temperature. And so uh, we had to start, you know, rationing what we had because we couldn't get it from Denmark. Um, the, we also did that same nonsense in 2009 about there not being enough. So that's a, that's a you know, they do that every every pandemic or every time they want to sell you vaccines, they tell you there's not going to be enough. Lori Garrett was going around the country giving talks. I went to one of her talks. Um, she was working for the Council on Foreign Relations at the time, and she was telling us about how the bird flu was coming any minute. And you know we, we you know we'd all die, but uh, there's still avian flu. There's avian flu in the United States. The CDC is making a big deal about it currently. Um, they have culled a lot of uh, birds, fowl for for food in the United States, claiming that there was bird flu in the area. But so far, bird flu is bird flu. It doesn't uh, move into humans. Very rarely a human will get it who is working with. Chick infected chickens or something like that, but it doesn't go any further. It stops at that person. All right. So then to go back to Ebola, there's been a bunch of Ebola. Ebola was only recognized in the 1970s in Africa, and it's only ever naturally, so-called naturally. It probably did naturally occur in Africa. I believe that uh, a woman who worked on bioterrorism for South Africa, uh, what was her name? Marguerite uh, Isaacson went to Zaire to collect samples is my belief uh, for that roughly 1974 um, epidemic of Ebola because it is a, a very deadly. You know, usually there's 50% or more death rate of known cases for Ebola. There's several different strains of it, and usually it's managed locally. So it doesn't really spread very far. Usually there's not that you know a few hundred cases maybe. 
But in 2014, it appeared in West Africa, and it had always been in Central Africa, never in West Africa before. So more than a thousand miles from where it had ever been, it appeared. And for some reason, the WHO refused adamantly to assist. And Doctors Without Borders helped with it, but it grew very large. And eventually, after about eight or nine months, the WHO did step in and the the epidemic was resolved, but everybody knows there were cases coming back to the United States and there was tremendous fear mongering about that. And that was a, a justification to remove all these supplies from this thing that had been created by this guy named Cadillac when he had been a congressional aide He'd, he'd written these, you know, reports about how dreadful biological warfare would be and basically had come up with the idea for a national strategic stockpile, which is located in 12, or at least it was, I don't know if it still is, 12 locations around the United States where they have containers full of drugs, vaccines, ventilators, masks, the whole nine yards, supposedly, for a pandemic or bioterrorism except they didn't have enough when Ebola struck and they didn't have enough, they had almost nothing when COVID struck. So this $7 billion collection of stuff with stocks that are rotated regularly really has been useless for us. What it has been is a way to buy products from, again, friends of politicians. So uh, Robert Cadillac, who was once a physician, uh, had also been a contractor, been a partner of the guy who started the anthrax vaccine company, Fuad El-Hibri. And that company, as soon as Cadillac became the assistant secretary for preparedness and response, the anthrax vaccine company bought the smallpox vaccine portion of, I think, Sanofi. And so they owned anthrax and smallpox. And then most of the money, about, I don't know, roughly one and a half to $2 billion a year, was then going to that company to buy anthrax and smallpox vaccines to replenish the stockpile because the vaccines expire every three or four years. And so there was no money left for gloves and masks and ventilators and all the rest. It's a, you know, it's a sordid tale. It's just gross corruption at, at every level. And nobody seems to care. So they created this, this demand for products. And, and the products are, are basically useless or have been in the past. All right. So that was the um, 2014 Ebola. Then there was a later Ebola in Uganda in 2018. And the WHO failed to go in again for about eight or 10 months and wouldn't help out in Uganda. And then finally they did. And that um, epidemic is also resolved. But if you look at the number of so-called pandemics or epidemics that the WHO has involved themselves with or has called a public health emergency of international concern, you'll see they failed at dealing with almost every one of them. So they, they failed in 2009 uh, for this fake um, swine flu, H1N1, came from Mexico, came from pigs. We were all, it was gonna be like 
1918 all over again, except it was milder than your normal flu. And so we quickly made vaccines. And in about six months, they had vaccines ready. And it turned out that the brand that was made by GlaxoSmithKline in Europe caused narcolepsy in over 1300, mainly adolescents, a very, very severe form of narcolepsy, so that they basically were unable to work, unable to go to school, ruined their lives. Um, after that was Ebola. They failed with the 2014 Ebola. After that was Zika, was never sorted out. What, what the heck was going on with Zika? This was a Zika unlike all prior Zika virus disease. So the, the story about the small heads in babies whose mothers were infected with Zika, it's never been fully resolved. And I'm, I don't know whether that was due to the Zika virus or not. Um, it had never been reported before. And Zika had occurred in some places like French Polynesia, where they have very a high level of medical care and and would have noticed if that had occurred previously, but it never did. It was it's in some places it's been blamed on pesticides, it's been blamed on other things. Don't know what's going on. But again, what is at the heart of some of the corruption is the fact that the WHO has been the go-between between manufacturers and countries for vaccines, for sleeper contracts of future vaccines. So almost every country has signed contracts with vaccine manufacturers that were basically drawn up by the WHO that say, look, once the WHO declares a, a pandemic at a certain level, in, in the old days, you had to have a pandemic level six. Nowadays, you have to have a pandemic of international concern. Once the, it gets to that point, governments are obliged to buy a certain number of doses of a vaccine for, for a condition they can't even predict ahead of time. They don't know what the vaccine will be made of. They don't know how safe or effective it will be, but they are committed to buy whatever the contract says, doses, and then give it to their people. And generally, once a country is committed to that and they're spending maybe hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars on those contracts, they're going to give those vaccines to their people, whether they're any good or not. Exactly right. And it's important to note that, of course, this isn't just vaccines. It's all manner of medical interventions from big pharma. As I mentioned before, Tamiflu with its Gilead Sciences intellectual property rights holders. Um, but how about the Ebola cure? ZMAP, ZMAP, ZMAP. Again, I don't know if people remember this, but I definitely remember watching the, uh, the coverage of the Ebola scare in the U.S. in 2014. And ZMAP was basically being given all of this free advertising is this wonderful new drug that's that can totally save you from this Ebola that's really coming to get you guys. And as it turns out, of course, ZMAP was developed by MapBio um, by grants from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, the Department of Defense Advanced Research Projects, and the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, the usual stew of military slash um, spook um, intervention in the biosecurity state. So no surprise there. And of course, a lot of people make money off of that, regardless, of course, of the fact that Ebola killed nobody in the United States. But boy, is it coming to get you and you better get your ZMAP ready. So um, uh, stock obviously went up after that. Let's also not forget that it was 2015 that that esteemed medical scientist, Bill Gates, wrote a, uh, a, a piece in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015 uh, the next epidemic, Lessons from Ebola, 
in which he started to talk about the various preparations that are going to be needed and things that are going to have to be put in place and putting vaccines quickly and all of that. Of course, Bill Gates used Ebola as the springboard for, for that. Let's also not forget, um, it was Dr. Charles Arntzen. And yeah, I had to look that one up. Dr. Charles Arntzen was a researcher at the University of Arizona who helped to develop an experimental Ebola treatment that was given to the American aid workers who fell ill with Ebola in 2014. And there was footage that was uh, surfaced online from 2012 of Dr. Arntzen joking about using genetic modification to create a better virus to cull 25% of the human population. Has anybody seen contagion? <laughs> That's the answer. Go out and use genetic engineering to create a better virus. Oh. <laughs> Which brings to mind similar pronouncements that have been made by various um, researchers over the years, like Dr. Eric Pianca at the U University of Texas at Austin, um, who was given a, uh, a Distinguished Texas Scientist, Scientist Award from the Texas Academy of Science in 2006. And in his acceptance speech, again, mused about the elimination of 90% of the human population through an airborne disease like, oh, say, the Ebola virus. So yeah, that has been a disease to conjure um, by for a number of years and has certainly fed into the development of this state. And, and you're right about Zika. I remember covering, of course, that hype at the time and everything that was going around about it. And I recall, and this is only off the top of my head, I'll see if I can dig it up and put it in the show notes. But I recall later on finding that there was actually no increase in microencephaly or whatever that's called, the, the underdeveloped uh, uh, children's heads. There was actually no statistical increase or statistically significant increase in that phenomenon. But for some reason, it was just latched onto and it, here's this thing that's connected to Zika. There was never any medical connection that was actually made there, at least as far as I know. So yes, hype after hype and always going back to vaccines, pharmaceutical interventions, etc. This is important for people to understand that, of course, the World Health Organization, the International Health Regulation Amendments, the proposed treaty or convention or agreement or whatever they're going to call it, is important. And this is part of this biosecurity infrastructure, but it's only part of the biosecurity infrastructure. And a lot of this has been functioning even without whatever amendments and new treaties they're going to put in place. So this is already possible in various states and various levels, and it already has been done a number of times um, by now. So uh, yes, we should be aware of the WHO and what it's doing, but we should know that this is part of a much broader field of global health security, national biosecurity initiatives that, as I say, are generally funded by defense departments and or intelligence agencies. Yes. Usually what happens is they've already given out the drug or the vaccine and then the thing is over and really nobody gets to assess whether it worked or whether it didn't work. You know, and the public health agencies are the last ones who want you assessing anything. In 2009, the WHA was forced because there was such an outcry about these contracts and, and the fact that they had called a public health emergency level six when they had just changed the definition you know, and made it very easy to call one when there was hardly any level of serious disease. Um, so they did have to do, you know, an after review and admit, you know, admit maybe they didn't do everything correctly. But what's happened now is we've had three years of COVID and there are no after action reviews. I mean, we can talk about how many people have died of COVID and I, I pulled out from the 
the new document on the international health regulations that came out on February 6th, an estimate of 15 million excess deaths that are perhaps due to COVID in that document. So the WHO admits to 15 million excess deaths. How many more people were pushed into malnutrition or starvation as a result of the lockdowns and other policies that were implemented by the WHO during COVID? And it turns out it's an extra 150 million people that have been pushed into starvation or near starvation, that there may be up to 30 or 35 million people a year dying of starvation when it only used to be Again, there are a lot of different estimates, but perhaps 10 or 15 million a year at the most. So if you balance 15 million excess deaths from COVID versus maybe 15 million excess deaths a year more from starvation, none of this makes any sense. The WHO is causing excess deaths by the policies that it pushed out. Um, we also have to realize that this is not coming from the WHO. This is coming from the G20, the World Bank, the United States, Germany, the UK. That's where the big money you know, is being made. There is a new financial instrument. Uh, they, it, call, it was called something else, and now they're calling it a pandemic fund. It's a new way to get taxpayer money given to a new international organization to pay for, you know, getting everybody up to speed for pandemics using techniques that have never been shown to work. I think that, you know, one of the issues is vaccines. I, I mean, drugs are important, but it seems that there's something special about the government's desire to be able to stick needles in us with substances that we cannot identify you know, at the level of the end user. Vaccines are complex mixes of substances and the FDA acknowledges that you can't test them at the end and be sure that they were manufactured correctly, that they're gonna be safe, that, that they're appropriate. And the fact that it takes, normally it takes 10 to 15 years to develop a vaccine. And yet our governments have said they can develop a vaccine and give it to us in under a year. and. CEPI, which is an organization created by Bill Gates and others to make vaccines for pandemics, has said they're going to be able to make a vaccine from start to finish in 100 days. And some, uh, some people are saying we're going to be able to, you know, create a vaccine within 30 days. Well, it's impossible. You know, let's just look at what happened during COVID. The United States had three vaccines, three different, actually now four with Novavax. So four different vaccines were given to the U.S. population. But China, Russia, and other countries developed their own vaccines. Did any of them work? Not a single one has been safe or effective. None of them have been effective. Nobody's been able to come up with a vaccine for coronavirus. And yet, you know, something like six billion people on the planet got vaccinated or got injected with substances that were neither safe nor effective. And the nations, the, the politicians, the public health experts, everybody in a position of authority pushed these out. And almost everybody in a position of authority suppressed information about their dangers 
and their lack of efficacy. And so it's taken over two years for us to finally figure out that people are dropping dead because these vaccines have caused excess clotting. And people are having sudden deaths when they exercise and in other situations. What it all means is that we can't trust the system. There's no way they can make vaccines that are decent in a short amount of time. If they do, they're very lucky. They've never been able to do that before. We shouldn't expect them to do it again. And we, we shouldn't put out our arms. And if they mandate it, if everybody says no, that will be the end of it. They're not going to hold us all down. Um, Let me interject because I think we shouldn't dignify the uh, mRNA injections with the name vaccine because whatever people associate with vaccines of the past, this is a novel form of medical intervention that does not function like any vaccine before. It functions on a completely different method that itself had never been experimentally tested in humans uh, up to this point. And why why 100 days? Why 30 days? Why not two days? Because actually the official line is that uh, Moderna developed its COVID-19 vaccine in just two days. It was two days after receiving the sequencing of whatever the Chinese sent over from, uh, from China back at the start of this. It took them two days to develop their vaccine, quote unquote, their injection. Um, so that is the the future of where we're going, where it's just based on some genetic sequence that we're told was, well, this was sequenced from some health authority somewhere. And anyway, they've designed it so to specifically target whatever we're going for. Don't worry about it. And eventually, of course, it will be uh, genomic sequencing down to your personal genomics. So we know that you will be able to respond to this um, personally. So that's where we're going with this. And I, I, until we start rejecting fundamentally that that entire premise of the, this is just a vaccine. It's just like it's just like all those other things you had when you were a child. And don't worry about it, guys. No, this is a novel form of medical in intervention that is being developed. Also, I want to address um, the point that has that uh, that has been raised uh, a couple of times by people who have listened to our conversations, and they've they've said something along the lines of, this whole WHO thing is a red herring. Uh, they can't create a treaty that will uh, supersede the Constitution. It is really dependent on the states in the U.S., for example. Um, and so all of this is just kind of hype and distraction. Uh, I don't think it is hype and distraction, but I do understand the general point, which I think we've been demonstrating here today. It doesn't require this new WHO treaty or whatever for these types of interventions to be done. But that's actually kind of the point. It doesn't require that because it's all it's it's. Whatever they enact is, yeah, it's whatever they want to do is what will happen. Um, having said that, I do at the very least want to draw people's attention to the fact that uh, the latest edition of the zero draft of whatever treaty, whatever they're calling it, um, is uh, up and available. I'll include it in the show notes. It's called the zero draft of the WHO CA plus for the consideration of the intergovernmental negotiating body at its fourth meeting. And of course, what is CA plus? The WHO convention, agreement, or other international instrument. This is why they're not calling it a treaty. Because yes, treaties have to be that a president or whoever can just sign a country up to that. And yes, theoretically, no convention should be able to abrogate the, the constitution in the United States, for example. But since when has that ever stopped any of this from happening? I would not hold my breath and just hope for that. Um, so I just want to draw some people's, uh, people's attention to some interesting parts of that zero draft. Article one starts out with the definitions, as you would expect, 
But at this point, there's a few definitions in there of a few of the things um, that they want to talk about, but several of them are left interestingly undefined. It just says, for example, pathogen with pandemic potential means dot, dot, dot. <laughs> they haven't filled that dot in yet. One health approach means dot, dot, dot. One health surveillance means dot, dot, dot. Infodemic means dot, dot, dot. Interpandemic means dot, dot, dot. So there's a lot of things that they haven't even defined yet. And one would imagine there will be some devils in those details. Article 15 of this draft is about global coordination, collaboration, and cooperation, which of course is about the setting up of the international infrastructure for all of this, including support mechanisms that ensure global, regional, and national policy decisions are science and evidence-based. Article 16 goes into the whole of government and whole of society approaches at the national level, including all of the parts of hardwiring in the biosecurity state that um, that we've been staring down the barrel of for the past few years. Um, the parties recognize that pandemics begin and end in communities and are encouraged to adopt a whole of government and whole of society approach, which they go on to say includes uh, private uh, corporations, of course, being brought in by government agencies and things like this to make sure everybody's on the same level. And uh, Article 17 is about strengthening pandemic and public health literacy, which I bet you can guess <laughs> is all about managing infodemics on social media, properly propagandizing the public, censoring voices that disagree, etc. And then Article 18 talking about One Health, which we talked about in our previous conversation. Uh, although interestingly, the language in this draft is specifically talking about pathogenic resistance to antimicrobial treatments and the development of that. It's focusing on that aspect of One Health. But as I say, they leave One Health approach and One Health surveillance under, undefined so far in this draft. So they can insert whatever they want at any time. Anyway, I just wanted to draw people's attention to that to let them know, yes, this global treaty, whatever they're calling it, is is going ahead and they've got the latest draft up for consideration of the INB. Again, exactly like those international health regulation amendments. You know, this is this is the window we get, but we have no actual seat at the table for the negotiations themselves. That's all taking place behind closed doors. I mean, really, you have to think back to the Nazis who, who made everything they did legal. We've already done a lot of things, a lot of things that were not legal in the United States. You know, we've allowed 12-year-olds to decide on whether they get a COVID shot without their parents' permission. And that is not legal at the state level, but it's been done uh, locally. And CDC probably pushed it out. You know, we've mandated experimental products for, for huge swaths of Americans, you know, probably 100 million Americans at one point. That's illegal but it was done by the federal government and people went along with it. And so, you know, one of the reasons to, to have these documents for the WHO is to legalize what they're already doing and what they want to continue to do and to even expand that and justify this huge biodefense architecture that, as James said, they want to instill, they want to build it into at every level of government. They want everybody to be afraid of pandemics and bioterrorism all the time. They want to create a society around that. And why do they want to do that? I mean, I can't exactly say, but what I do know is, is that you can make a lot of pathogenic organisms 
They, they aren't that hard to make in a lab. Whether they're going to create a pandemic, that's another story because most of them mutate very quickly. And, you know, unless you've seen them in a population, you really don't know what they're going to do. But scientists can create these organisms and banning the creation of them is what we need. If we ban their creation, we wouldn't have, we used to have one pandemic a generation. Now the WHO is declaring them every two years, you know, for the last, because I'm old, I remember when, you know, I didn't never took all of these pandemics seriously that happened over the last 20 years because I knew they weren't going to really go anywhere, you know, and I understood what to do with them. But I'm now realizing that the, the entire world ha has been acculturated to fear and expect them. And, and we have to change that belief system. And then we have to ban the, the science. We, we don't have inspections. We don't have sanctions. We don't have ways of stopping governments from, from creating these new organisms. And what the WHO wants is they want to manage what's now called gain of function. You know, it used to be biological warfare. It was germ warfare. It was biodefense. And they keep changing the name to confuse you. Now it's gain of function. But it's the same I, I, thing. No, 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 no. Now it isn't gain of function. Now it's directed evolution <laughs> because oh, gain of function became tainted. So now they're calling it directed evolution, right? Anyway, yeah, yes. Every few years. No one will know. Well, we don't want the WHO managing it. We want it banned. And oddly enough, um, Robert Redfield called for a banning of it in The Hill this past week in an op-ed. Robert Redfield is the former uh, CDC director under Trump. So if he's calling for a ban, you know, it, it's not it's not far out. This is what we have to do. We have to tell the WHO they can throw away their pandemic planning architecture and they can throw away their directed evolution bugs. Um, and we want to live in peace. Yeah. Let me get on the horn to the Pentagon and DARPA and see what I can do about that. <laughs> it's a huge <laughs> undertaking. And I think you're right. We, at the very least, the first thing we have to do is diffuse the propaganda that has been planted for decades now to get people to live in mortal fear of these pandemics and everyone is just around the corner and it's going to kill billions and you better watch out and do whatever we say that is the level of control and once people stop believing in that we eliminate their uh, supposed justification for the billions that they're spending on all of this research um i think we should put on the record before we go uh, who extends global COVID emergency but some countries ready to move on. So uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, the WHO officially extended the COVID emergency, but admitted it may be at a transition point. And also just to tie a bow on the biosecurity, homeland security, um, you mentioned before, no after action reports on, on COVID. Oh, don't worry. Uh, as was reported in 2021, they set up a preparatory group that was going to look into creating a national COVID commission in the United States headed by... Philip Zelikow. And for people who don't know about Zelikow and his work, um, just look at my work on him in the past. I've had a few episodes on him in the Corbett Report archives. But yes, this is the man who was brought in to manage the 9-11 cover-up and uh, the executive director of the 9-11 Commission, who is now being brought in to form a COVID commission in the United States. So we know exactly what that means. Again, it's homeland security, biosecurity, two, two branches of essentially the same beast. All right. Well, I think our time is up. I thank you once more for allowing me to have this conversation and 
helping the audience understand what is going on, all this craziness. And together we are going to, we're going to have to stop it one way or the other. We're going to stop it or we're going to live in fear and uh, who knows what they will unleash next. So again, this was great. I hope to see you next month. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Bye.